I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. In each episode, I ask my guest to distill a lifetime's reading into one conversation about five books which have been significant in their lives to date. Uh, This time I'm joined by Winston Marshall, founding but now former member of the Grammy and Brit Award-winning band Mumford & Sons. Winston left the band last year following an online backlash after he tweeted praise for a book by the controversial US journalist Andy Ngo, which argues that far-left activists have radical plans to destroy democracy. Uh, Since then, uh, Winston Marshall has set up a volunteer organisation to assist political migrants from Hong Kong in Britain and presents Marshall Matters, a podcast for The Spectator, in which he interviews artists about culture, politics and more. Uh, Winston Marshall, welcome to Books to Live By. I'm delighted to have you here today. Mariella, it's a pleasure to speak with you again. Thank you so much. Um, It's interesting that we should be talking about books, of course, because this great sort of Damascene moment, if you will, um, occurred in your life and actually in many ways represents the power of books, doesn't it? Is that something that you've always been conscious of? Well, it's I I certainly could never have predicted that uh, uh, recommending a book would get me into so much trouble. And um, the book in question, which you described, I should say, doesn't actually argue that uh, far-left extremists have a radical plan to take down democracy, but rather it documents the far-left extremism occurring in, or that occurred in America through 2020, the 19 deaths in the first 14 days of the BLM riots, the looting, the many businesses that were destroyed. And as far as I could see it, the author was a brave guy to write it. He put his life in danger to document those things. And you know, actually through the pandemic, I'd been tweeting about the various books I'd been reading from Mao's Little Red Book, a book, don't forget, that inspired the killing of 60 million people uh, to Tolstoy's War and Peace and everything in between. And and um, I certainly didn't think books could be so uh, threatening. I suppose they, I didn't think they'd be so threatening to me. So it's actually a great pleasure to talk about other books because I don't want my life to be sort of marked by this one book uh, that that seems to get me in so much trouble. How difficult. It's interesting, though, because it, it is a book that in a way uh, reflects an appetite for reading that you have. Because if you look at the list of books, the five books that you've chosen, they're all books that explore different philosophies, explore different ideas about how we live, how we should live, you know, uh, you know the, the, the good and the bad of, 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 of humankind. So, I mean, it seems to me that it was one in a long line of books questing further knowledge is that is that what you do your reading with because I mean we've got Dostoevsky we've got Camus we've got Herman Hesse you know they're not they're not light reading well I've chosen uh, to, some fiction books to to uh, talk about and, and some 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 of the great novels and I think all the books actually probably would be considered great novels that I've picked out um, today but I don't I, I would say novels probably account for maybe 20% of what I read and, and it's, it's, 
I read everything really from philosophy to psychology or pop psych to in just there's nothing I won't read. I made a, a, a commitment, it's been a very uh, painful commitment about six years ago to read every book I'm ever recommended. The intention being that I didn't want to ever get stuck into an echo chamber. And I thought, well, if I get recommended a book, I should read it to always expand my mind, which basically means there's mountains of books at home. It's a complete mess the entire time. And um, I've always got a list of books uh, to get through. And um, But it's a, it's a great pleasure and, and it keeps me uh, mentally on my toes. How influenced are you by books, though? Because, uh, of course, the controversy around that Andy uh, No book uh, was, I presume, about the fact that um, by recommending it, other people might read it and be influenced by his uh, you know, his philosophies or his his ideas or, uh, you know, the, the subject he was exploring, which was Antifa in, in American politics. Are you influenced? Like, w w you know, this is very much a, a podcast about books that, that have influenced you one way or another, maybe negatively, maybe positively. Do you find yourself easily influenced or um, swayed by books in the way that those who fear books uh, suggest that, that we have to be careful of them? That's a really good question because, yeah, the implication is that books really are threatening, and and we're we're in an age where censorship seems to be a very popular idea. And uh, I, I had on my podcast uh, uh, an author called Yasmin Mohammed who could not have her book unveiled about her escaping uh, Islamist background, or rather, she was married to her cousin I believe who was in Al-Qaeda and the story documents her leaving that and she wasn't able to get the book unveiled published because and she was told by various publishers simply two words every time Salman Rushdie and so uh, uh, so well I guess that's not quite censorship but th th there is something about um, there's something about books where we're in an era where f free publication isn't a given as we we might have hoped now as for the philosophy again i don't i don't think the book i recommended has a philosophy it's 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 a journalist who documents a phenomenon and um so why i think it was perhaps a threat was because uh there's been this uh kind of idea that uh, that there there's goodies and baddies and and you have to support the goodies today this is a great fallacy which has come comes up in in uh, human thought time and time again um, and, and neglects the, the Christian idea that we're all fallen and fallible. Um, but any book that supports the wrong nav narrative or, or, or breaks up the narrative, narrative as we're supposed to understand it. So, for example, if you remember in 2020, BLM, you weren't able to criticize that. I, I had spoke to a recently on the phone to a band in America, a member of a band called Hanson. And they, if I get the story right, they posted the black square a day late, and that had so offended people that they had to apologize for it. And it, so there was a very, in that year, there was a very sort of fervent atmosphere, and anything that went against that um, was deemed completely unacceptable. And I think we're out of that um, a, a little bit, yeah. But I'm not quite sure why why this 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 feeling that free speech is a threat has come about, and, and partly maybe because free speech is... A threat to people who are in power and and if people feel like they're in power um they don't want that undermined i i don't know i i'm sort of speaking a bit vaguely now yeah i wonder because th th i think that 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 might be um too simplistic in a way it seems to me it's fear of ideas again which is is something that you know if you look back through 
you know, centuries of history, Lucene has happened at some of the darkest times in human history. And, and there does seem to be a terrible fear of exploring anything that doesn't, you know, conform with the status quo. I mean, interestingly, you know, one of the things that that that, that you were accused of, of being was a sort of Nazi sympathizer as a result of recommending that, that book. And yet the first book that that you've chosen uh, on your list of five uh, described as the best autobiography uh, you've ever read is Corrie Ten Boom, The, the Hiding Place, um, mm. which uh, you'd be hard pushed to 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 choose as a as a Nazi sympathizer, I have to say. Tell me a little bit about uh, Corrie Ten Boom's uh, autobiography which I've never read. Uh, it's a, a breathtaking uh, book. And, and I feel like I, I, I should quickly address the uh, you, the accusations that I'm a Nazi sympathiser. Uh, you case... know, I'm not accusing you, obviously. <laughs> OK, well, it, but it's, it's an example now. There are these terms like Nazi, racist, fascist that are thrown about willy-nilly and are sort of losing meaning, particularly where... In my family, one half of the family were fighting the, arts, the Nazis. The other half of the family were fleeing the Nazis because they were Jews. So uh, it, it's it's very um, kind of upside down world we live in when that's the case. No, I agree. But, I think I mean that's why I bring it up because it seems incredibly incongruous and and comes from a, a position I would suggest of some degree of of ignorance to be lobbing uh, accusations like that at you. I mean I can understand people who might disagree with the book but you know as you've just said you come from a, a, a line of persecuted people for a start the, the same people that the nazis you know contributed enormously to persecuting yeah well let, so this book Corrie ten boone's the hiding place it, it's a it's the story of a, a dutch family in the second world war who and then actually a christian family and they take it upon themselves to hide jews in their house through uh, through the war, and uh, at great risk to themselves. And if my memory is correct, it's a father who's quite getting on and his two daughters who are there in their 40s. And one of the daughters is the author, Corrie ten Boom. And so it's a, it's a true life story. And they take the, uh, Jews in who they, they've been, uh, some of them they've been working with. There's a shot downstairs. And they have these various interactions with Nazis through the war. And, and what's I think one of the most striking, there's a, several striking things about the book, but one of them is that the, one of the sisters, because of her Christian faith, has an unerring dedication to the truth. She cannot lie, which is quite, well, it t gets tested really to the limit. So, for example, one day the Nazis come in and, and the family have hidden various um, Jewish people through the house, behind under floorboards, behind cupboards, in secret rooms. And the, uh, the Nazis come in and they're in the kitchen and they say, so where are, the, where are the Jews? We know they're in here, where are they? And the daughter says, under the table. Now, they can see, the Nazi can see the, the table and can see underneath the table, there's clearly no one there. But actually, Underneath the rug, underneath the table, is a trapdoor where the Jews are. So the other sister is looking at the sister going like, are you insane? Like, you just, you told them where they are. But this, this, this sister cannot lie. So she, she tells it. Now, it's so, um, it's almost, it was the sort of perfect uh, uh, disguise. So they get away with it that time. But then they come again. And the, the uh, Nazis ask, where are the Jews? We know they're in here. 
And she goes, they're in the cupboard because that's where they are because she cannot lie. And uh, the, obviously now the Jews get discovered, they get taken away by the Nazis. And the, the, um, the oldest, one of the sisters, the author, Kora Ten Boom goes, what have you, how have you done? Like, what have you, everything we've been, um, you, you know, doing to protect these people and you've let them just go away like this. And, uh, and the, the other sister goes, you have, you have to have faith. Now, it turned out that the Jews that were found that day were put on a lorry and that that lorry that evening was liberated and all of the Jews that the Nazis had taken that day had been liberated. Now, if you're a person of faith, I don't cry very often when I read a book, but I think I cried about four times reading this book. And uh, that that's one of those moments. And I mean, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I would have done the same thing i'm i'm certain i would have lied so they're not in there <laughs> yeah and i'm innocent <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly um so the book can then continues and and because of their hiding the jews despite being christians the boone's family gets taken to the concentration camps as well and and she they just the book documents their time in the concentration camp now it's a beautifully written uh book and i'm not going to say exactly what happens at the end for people who haven't read it. But I will say that the author, the last scene, one of the last scenes is the author meeting the Nazi officer who had been in charge in the camp when she was there and her reaction to meeting him. Now, I won't say what happened because I, I think it's really worth reading, but it's, it's an astonishing and completely unpredictable uh, uh, scene and and um, just a, a, I think it should be re required reading for all people that book. So tell me, what age were you when you first read this book? And was it the element of faith and the inability or the the, the determination to be faithful to that faith, if you will, that that was the most intriguing element of it? Well, it's certainly a test for me. As I said, I'm not sure I could. In in I could I would I would I would almost certainly have lied. I wouldn't have had the the courage in the faith. My, I'm not sure my faith in God is that strong as this woman's was. Now, but you are a a spiritual person. I I, I um became a Christian. I, I was I I became a Christian properly. Uh, I would say in twenty. Uh, re recently, a few years ago, and um, I I've been reading sort of literature about the Holocaust throughout my life, but I actually didn't come across this book until after I became a Christian, which uh, was only a few years ago. So um, uh, it was quite quite a discovery, and I'd actually not heard about it um, uh, before then. But but I I do think it stands up there with Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, um, as as one of the great uh, uh, pieces on the Holocaust that that really everyone should read. Um why did you become a Christian in maturity, just as a matter of interest? Well, I um, I would say that I was uh, certainly I would I had accepted that I was culturally Christian. I think that if you're born and raised in Britain, much as you might try and deny it, you are almost certainly culturally Christian, and your morals will have been shaped without you realizing by the uh, two millennia of Christian thought. Um, but uh, but you also come from a, a European Jewish ancestry, as we were talking about at the beginning. Yes. Mm. So uh, so well, I, I can get into my sort of family story. But my my uh, my mother's French, and, and her mother was a Hungarian from Transylvania, Jews, and they fled to Portugal 
through the, uh, but uh, they, they, it's actually I actually have my grandma's diaries documenting, and she would have been a teenager, 14, 15, documenting their journey from Transylvania through through Germany. They even spent the night in Munich in the end of 1942. Now, the Holocaust in Hungary started uh, late, actually. It was 19, I think it was 1943, 44, but, it would, but then it was horrific after that, and it was a lot of people killed very, very quickly. So they managed to escape quickly, but none of her uh, cousins and uncles and aunts uh, did um, I think one only one of them survived, uh, an aunt called Titi, uh, but all the others were, uh, and there's about 13 of them were killed in, on the not just in the camps, but on the death marches. And uh, I have the diaries. Actually, what's very moving about the diaries is that, that when she left Hungary, she had all her cousins sign her diaries. And they, these are kids, right? So there's this little cartoons and uh, little poems, uh, some in Hungarian, some in French, and... Uh, now, now later we know where what happened to each of these individuals, and and, and it's obviously something I'm going to treasure forever. Um, but it was a very moving little book, and then her diaries going through uh, f- through Germany, Switzerland to France. She describes crossing the border uh, in Switzerland. Uh, I think would it be Germany into Switzerland where she that she's no she just it's a little footnote in the diary, and she describes. She wrote all of this in French, by the way. She, she was a brilliant woman. She spoke uh, seven languages and wrote in all of them uh, uh, fluently. And um, she, there's one little footnote, and it's, it's, uh, it's quite astonishing. It, it describes a Nazi officer slipping and falling on the train station on the ice and all the Nazi, other Nazi officers pointing and laughing. And, and she doesn't quite, and you know, she would have been a, a young teenager. She doesn't quite realize, I think, what's happening around her. And so it reads a bit like Catcher in the Rye, uh, by Salinger, or um, what's the other um, "To Kill a Mockingbird," uh, where where you you, you know you, you're you're seeing it through the eyes of of the children in the in the novels, but you actually have the perspective of the adults who are there in the background, and so she doesn't quite realize the magnitude of what's happening as you read these diaries, uh, but but you have all these little details that suggest she might vaguely be pointing it together. And then, I, I, I haven't found this in the diary, but she told me as well, when they were crossing the border into Spain, uh, her parents had gone into the uh, uh, border control or whatever it was to check passports. She was in the car with her younger brother and a Nazi officer tapped on the window and, and asked her to, uh, to unroll the window and said in German, Hey, little Jewish girl, where are you running off to? And she said, snap back, who are you calling Jewish in German to, to him? And, and uh, again, just these little moments that everything could have changed, you know, with the wrong, saying the wrong thing. or It's quite, it's, it's quite astonishing. So, so sorry, uh, I... I uh, no, that's really quite, interesting. That's <laughs> um, so, that, so that's one side of my family. And then um, that she settled in Paris after the war. And uh, she married an Italian, my grandpa, who and he's got another uh, uh, amazing story, although I don't have it documented. But uh, so the Italians, uh, they started, uh, uh, they switched sides halfway through the war. So he, he fought on both of that. So he started, he would have started um, fighting under Mussolini. And then when they changed and, and fought, um, changed with the Allies, he uh, and joined the Allies, he fought with them. And so but he described to me fighting in in Croatia against the Nazis with British forces, forces, and he got. He said he he said to me, and I, this is quite. 
he, I remember him sitting down at a dinner and m making it absolutely clear that I had to hear this story. When I was too young, I think I must have been like seven or eight, to quite realize how important this was for him for me to hear this story. But he described being caught by Nazis and stripped and then somehow escaping into the sea, finding a little dinghy and, and, and in the night making it back across to Italy. Now, I don't, I can't understand now whether he made it really across the sea, because that's, I think that's quite a way to go, whether he hug, hugged the coast around. There's bits in the story I don't really, I don't know. And, but, uh, so there's, anyway, that's another side. And then, uh, and then on my English side, um, they were from uh, Kent and Manchester. My great-grandfather, Aubrey Marshall, was in Egypt under Montgomery. And um, his daughter was in the Wrens, I think. And oh, I haven't got it all to hand, I'm afraid. No, um, anyway, don't worry. So, but but it's, it's, a, sorry, yes, sorry. it's how that gets back to my Christian faith. And then I was uh, I was actually raised Christian, but lost my faith aged 18. Uh, a big part of losing my faith actually was reading Camus' The Plague, which is also on which the we're list. about and to I, talk about. Yeah, right. And then um, and then spent sort of uh, 12, 13, 14 years adrift and then had a, a very difficult divorce and and through the divorce, I came to Christ again. So, so I would say before that, I, had, I was philosophically there, I was at the church door, but the experience of the divorce brought me into the church on my, on my knees, I'd say. Um, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> there you well, go, this short biography. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, you mentioned the plague, so let's, let, let's move on and, and, and talk about the plague. You, you described it as the book you've read more than once, and maybe we can find out, dig into that in, in a moment. But it, it is a, a, another book in which, um, you know, the, the capability or the ability of man, and I mean men and women, but mankind, for, you know, really appallingly bad behavior uh, that marks us out as a particularly cruel species would seem in a way to be very much present at the forefront of, of this novel in the way that Camus explores how this plague brings out either the best or the worst in people, which again is something that goes back to, I mean, I'm a, an atheist and, you know, all the reading I've done about the Second World War only confirms to me that there just can't be a God out there that would let anything that horrific happen and 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 yet and yet it has an opposite effect on you well actually that's funny if we before we get into Camus I heard something recently by a rabbi and I've forgotten the name of the rabbi which is so annoying to me but um, he describes the uh, you know a lot of atheists cite the holocaust as a reason why God doesn't exist how can there be a God if hell on earth can become about like that, how could a God let that happen? And this rabbi says, but actually, if you speak to those people who were in the camps, they say God was with them. And who is it for you to tell them that there is no God when they were in the hell and they were with God? Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that's going to persuade anyone left or right, uh, you know, uh, to change their mind. But but it was, I was very moved by that um, particular thing. And, and there, actually, is, the, there is also a really beautiful book, isn't there? Is it, is it a Primo Levi book where he talks about it's the moments of reprieve or something it's called. And it's it's actually, it's him exploring, I'm sure it's Primo Levi, I've got to look it up, but um, exploring 
these moments of goodness, these incredible moments of 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 of, of charity and sublime mm. goodness that occurred mm. during the Holocaust, uh, which, as you say, might make you feel differently. I, my my atheism isn't defined solely by the Holocaust. I no, okay. <laughs> well, actually, I haven't read Primo Levi yet, though I have him on my shelves, and and I look forward to getting to that. There's a darker angle on that, which is what Frankel describes. And it's quite a terrifying thought, but he but he sort of says that the the people who survived the the camps were not the best ones because they were the ones who had to the, the the most generous and the kindest ones in the camps were the ones who lost their lives because they sacrificed things for others. So that's a that's a there's a dark implication there. Um, uh, actually, I should have put Frankel on the list because that book uh, Man's Search for Meaning, Meaning is really just exceptional. Um, uh, and but, it is it is moments of reprieve, by the way, in case you want to start with that one, the Primo Levi book. Is that the name of the book? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, that's okay. Well, there you go. As I said earlier, I'm committed to reading every book I'm recommended. So there you go. It's jumped to the top of the list. Um, <laughs> Yay! Camus, <yeah. laughs> Camus' book, actually, I didn't know this at the time when I first read it, but is apparently an analogy for ideas. So he talks about a plague as in a literal plague similar to one we've all experienced as, as a, 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 the human race. But um, uh, he apparently it was he was exploring the idea of how ideas, I think he meant specifically the Nazi uh, philosophy, infiltrates a group, a community, a civilization. But I didn't quite um, read it like that. And, and, and there's a sort of, I had this weird thing. So I read it again when our when, play. When did you first read it? I read it in 20... Uh, 2007, and actually it was a big inspiration for a song I wrote for Mumford & Sons called Winter Winds. Uh, so that book, I, I remember going to Paris and reading and just having, for like three or four days, and I just had The Plague and I had Bukowski's Post Office. And somehow those two books formed, turned into Winter Winds. And it kind of sort of makes sense to me now, but, but I remember reading Camus and something about it, there was some passage that I was, I was convinced that, that proved that there was no God. And I was, I was actually, as another one of the books that made me, move me to tears. And so I revisited it again because I was reading all the plague literature through the pandemic, whether it's Samuel Pepys or Daniel Defoe has a book about the plague. And, and I, so I read the Camus book again and I couldn't find this passage at all that had made me, moved me so much, which I couldn't, I, I, I I still, I, I, I still, so you I don't still haven't people, found it. I still haven't found it. I read it again and it was like, no, it didn't move me at all. So I, it's a little <laughs> frustration. I wish I'd marked it up. And, um, but anyway, it feels like despite that, it's an important book uh, to me. So I thought I should put it on the, on the list. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, that's so interesting because it, is that why you've read it more than once then? Because <laughs> you're yeah. still looking for this, this elusive passage. It's an elusive passage that made me run away from God and yet I can't actually find it anymore. So maybe it was just in my head, an imagination. So tell me what it is about the plague that, that, that particularly struck you or that particularly spoke to you. As you say, you know, it, it, it's often considered an allegory for fascism. You know, there are those who, who see it uh, uh, as a reference to the Third Reich, but then others argue that it's got, uh, that, that it was nothing to do with that. And of course, he was criticised, wasn't he, by, by all those other uh, Frenchy writers at the time for not directly confronting um, the, the Third Reich and, and, and Nazism. Well, you know, to be honest, I, I, I haven't done enough preparation on this to revisit Camus, but, but Camus certainly, when I was a teenager, and I think this is, this is kind of a classic, almost cliche for teenagers to, to, get, to have a kind of Camus period. And, oh, yeah, and you're I, supposed to walk it. around. You're supposed to walk around in, like, raincoats with <laughs> Camus. But I got told by Edward St. Auburn that the reason that it's Camus and it's often the plague um, mm. is because it's pocket-sized. So you can fit it in your uh... coat pocket and you can have the title <laughs> and the author's name sticking it's out. Fantastic. <laughs> well, there you go. I'm, I am the cliché then. Um... <laughs> All boys are clichés at one point. So did you read it first as a teenager? No, yes, yes. Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. Read it as a teenager, inspired that song, Winter Winds, and uh, reading it again now, I don't understand what about it is inspiring. But, you know... Oh, really? It, what? So reading it again, it didn't... It, it, didn't, it didn't move, move you... me at all. No, not at all. I, I, I feel like it, it wasn't quite as profound as I'd hoped, and... I think I discovered Russian literature after that. And I think having gone through the Russians, going back to the existentialists and the French, it just isn't quite as... They don't ask the difficult questions in the same way that, say, a Dostoevsky does. That's so interesting, you say, because also it, it, it just epitomises or illustrates that thing about how we change, you know, how how books stay the same but we change and so our relationship with them changes you know and, and the plague mm. would be a very typical example of that I was going to talk to you about uh, Michael Welbeck next but actually oh, yeah. you've mentioned, well, but you've mentioned the Russians which would you rather go to Dostoevsky's demons or Welbeck which, 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 where do you see the natural segue Oh well, well, I've mentioned the Russians, so we should we should talk about. It. And then, yeah, so I put Dostoevsky's Demons on 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 the list, and and you said it was a book you struggled through, but you were glad you did. I get this a lot with Dostoevsky, and 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 this is maybe because I'm I'm not as uh, I'm not so bright, but I whatever the book is by Dostoevsky, it's a it's hard work going through the book. It's I I often have. 150, 200 pages where I'm really slogging it out and then you and you want to give up and you're kind of done. And then you have two or three incredible scenes and you're like, yes, and you're kind of, your, 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 your brain starts having all these sort of uh, fireworks and these, you know, eureka moments. Oh, this is it, this is everything. And, and, and then he plunges you back into another 150 pages of like, you have to slodge through. And I... And, and and just as you're going to give up again, then he gives you these great scenes. And and whatever the book is, I, that's sort of my experience uh, reading Dostoevsky. But Demons, uh, I was particularly uh, I read this again in the pa in the pandemic, and 
you know, he predicts that socialism, well, he's writing at the same time as Nietzsche, actually, but he predicts that socialism will kill 100 million or communism will kill, kill 100 million correctly. And um, uh, it's this comic slash very uh, dark interplay uh, of these political outsiders who are kind of motivated not just by actually wanting to make the world a better place, but their own sort of anger at the world and all these various things. And, and there's, I remember this beautiful scene motif. When I say beautiful, it's not necessarily beautiful, but it moved me, which is the jewel, a motif of a jewel where there's jewels happening through. And one character refuses ever to pull his gun and it frustrates the other character because he's like, why won't you pull your gun and actually jewel me? And uh, I remember thinking at the time, this is actually the, the parable, the Christ's parable of turning the other cheek. Now, there's a, a misconception, I think, that the turning the other cheek is, is a way of um, a, a sign of, of weakness and passive. Mm. But actually, you've got to think about the psychological effect of turning the other cheek. Christ doesn't say, turn the other cheek and cower. You stand strong. And, and someone hits you and you stand strong in front of them and, and what the psychological effect that will have on them that you're not affected. It's, and that's what I think Dostoevsky ex really explores in this book amongst many other things. I was actually, I had, I was just in America uh, doing some shows and, and um, some speaking events and I've somehow become very friendly with the Solzhenitsyn family. And um, I had Thanksgiving with uh, Ignat Solzhenitsyn, who, by the way, you should have here on this on the thing, because I, as well as being a phenomenal conductor in his own right and, and musician, he's also, as far as I can tell, the leading scholar on Alexander Scott Solzhenitsyn's work. And so I, I, I actually had him on my show, and I've cited uh, his father's work a lot. So uh, we've became friendly, friendly over the last sort of eighteen months, and and I had Thanksgiving with him and his family. Astonishing, wonderful, intelligent bunch. All of them speak four or five languages, all of them doing fascinating different things. And I was in, I think, I'm pretty sure I was in Alexander's bedroom and would read his memoirs of, of, of uh, living in, in that house because he was in exile there. It was the only time in his life he was actually happy. And he describes that, you know, having left Russia where he, uh, he went. He fought on the front line against the Nazis. Then he had cancer. Then he had the gulags. Then he went into exile. So astonishing life. This guy, and he was he was happy here. Um, and uh, but uh, I, sorry, I had this conversation with Ignat, and we were discussing the difference between Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And he, Ignat insight was that Tolstoy is it's beautiful to read, and and there's a lot of wisdom to be. T taken from Tolstoy, um, uh, but it, it's really beautiful to read. It's technically superb, but that he never goes quite as deep as Dostoevsky, and that Dostoevsky really went for it. So it, it might be harder to read, but he really philosophically goes more profound than I think Tolstoy did. Now, I haven't read all of Tolstoy's, uh, uh, so I don't feel totally qualified to uh, um, say that Tolstoy doesn't go as deep as Dostoevsky, but, but as much as I've read, that seems to me to be true. And, and War and Peace was another one I, I, I loved and, and does go there a little bit. And there's this amazing scene where Pierre comes back from war, his wife's gone, and, and, he, and he says, my ruin has made me much richer. And, and 
there's something beautiful about that. That's the book of Job. That's the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And actually that also tied back a lot of my experience, why I came back to the Lord was, was uh, feeling like things were taken away and, and, and uh, yeah, anyway, so I, I digress. But uh, uh, so much yeah, as what I- do you mean, What do you mean feeling like things were taken away? Well, uh, you know, well, so for me, it was like going through a divorce. So when, you, when your conception of the world and, and how you perceive your own future and your own story to be, if when that's completely wiped out and uh, you, you, you're sort of on your knees in, in that sense, and it's a humbling, I guess, and it's the humbling and it's remembering that you are not God, it's uh, that all your worldly ambitions can be taken from you at the snap of a finger. And um, and and I think that's I think that's the the, the story of Job as well. Is everything you've built, no matter if it's your family, if it's wealth you've built, that can all go at the snap of a finger. But you have to give thanks to the to the Lord because it could always be worse. But isn't it ironic then that that did happen to you in a way? It ha- happened to you at the sort of not quite the snap of a finger, but the tap of a finger, you could <laughs> say. Um, yeah. Do you think about that and 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 and? what sort of impact does a moment like that in your life you know and you're you know relatively young you know what what sort of impact does it have on how you choose to live afterwards you know when you have this you know complete sort of escalated hysteria sort of salem like congregation attacking you and 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 you realize that you have to make a big big decision about which fork in your life which 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 direction you're going to take in the, at this at this fork what, what does that do to you in the in it's I, so ultimately it's been incredibly humbling i would say that the you know the before i would i was workaholic i would if i wasn't on tour i would be getting into the studio to write more songs and trying to make money and um I, I, I was probably quite narcissistic and self-centered. And I think having that all go like that has made me completely realign and, and shift uh, how I've constructed myself internally. And, and uh, now I'd say that instead of me being at the top of the, of the sort of pyramid of the, of, or that sort of temple within it's it's him it's god and and in so doing now everything is aligned and i'm i'm a far more peaceful man far more peaceful so 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 i see it as pain it's a very painful experience and and um it's it's cost me a lot in worldly terms but but i'm i'm i found a peace now that i didn't have before has it has it also made you more radical or more comfortable with being radical in your in your ideas in your in your speaking engagements in 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 your way or in the way in which you face the world do you think i was listening in on the elon musk twitter spaces the other day he was because of these twitter files have been been leaked and he he called in to the hundred thousand listeners on twitter space from his private jet and and someone was asking him about his politics and he says that he's a radical moderate and I guess this is the kind of the idea of a radical centrist. I don't know how to use the term radical. I'm not quite sure what about me is radical. But in, in that sense, 
I probably would align with Master that, you know, I think that we need right and left in conversation, in dialogue. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a war. It's not, it's, it's, it's synthesis. We need, we need both sides in, 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 in uh, uh, communication. And if that's a radical position, then yeah, I'm a radical. <laughs> But as and as you've discovered, it is a, a war to, to to some extent. And I suppose the assumption, um, you know, when you recommended No's book was that you had transformed or perhaps just revealed yourself. You know, whipped off your cloak and revealed yourself as a sort of far right, uh, anti antifada, you know, Trumpian, um, yeah, radical. I guess. Well, I mean. To how reading one book can get you in that sort of trouble, I think. You know, books are I, dangerous. Yeah, well, I mean, books are dangerous. Books are dangerous. I mean, just because I read Mao's Little Red Book doesn't mean I'm a communist. And of course, uh, communism killed far more people than Trump. <laughs> so uh, um, this, it's all topsy-turvy. And, 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 uh, and the problem with reading all these books is that you can go a little bit insane when, you, when it's, it's so, some of these comparisons are made that seem so out there and so distant from reality but I've, i think it's our responsibility to to educate that something's happened in education that's failed that people aren't reading enough books people aren't reading enough history people aren't reading enough philosophy and so all of these things are out of proportion and everything is so low definition instead of people really understanding how bloody complex everything is and so so yeah that's a, that's a problem that that mariella you and i need to make sure doesn't continue to the next generations. Like it's our responsibility. We may be been let down by the previous generation, but we need to make sure that doesn't happen for the next generation. Well, one person who really does do a lot of polarizing of, of readers, and I would say also divides the sexes because I think he's much less read by women than he huh. is uh, by men. Is um, Michel Welbeck? Have I pronounced it properly? You have, yes. Um, and and the book you've chosen is Soumission, uh, and it and uh, you <laughs> you say that it's the book that when no one can see what you're reading, you will read. So, are you ashamed to admit your uh, Welbeck uh, habit? Well, yeah, that's point. The, the the category of book was the book that you're you don't want anyone to know you're reading. But of course, I'm coming now publicly to tell you that I'm reading this book. I um, and funnily enough, you're right about it's women. Don't very like Harry and Meghan. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, I put that on last night, and what is going on there? It's appalling. But, but it's just a complete disconnect from, from reality, isn't it? I'm here to tell you how much I hate having attention focused on me. And yeah, you think, and his yeah, yeah, what? part one of a, I mean... Six-part series, in case you enjoyed it enough to go back. <laughs> Astonishing. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so tell me all about the book you're ashamed. Well, you're right about women not liking his mum. My my mum hates Welbeck, and and because there are pornographic scenes in it, um, and so so that's. I he's think also got an obsession with sluts. You know, he uses the word yeah. slut like constantly. You know, either he's describing some man as being a bit of a slut, or he's off to visit a slut, or you know, yes. I mean, it, <laughs> exactly. peppered with sluts. Exactly, and and um, and I think that. Uh, but for me, that's it's, and I guess in that sense, it's a little bit sort of Bukowskian. But um, for for me, the the thing I love so much about Welbeck is the exploration of ideas. So so in in submission, he it's this idea that that 
the civilization of the West has lost confidence in its own values and philosophy. And then when a new set of values and philosophy come in, it just kind of kowtows to it. It just kind of bends over to it. And, and actually, this is something that Oriana Fallaci, the Italian uh, journalist and author, wrote about, that liberalism will, self it will suicide itself because it won't have the strength. It will, it will let in the ideas. It will tolerate the ideas that will be its undermining. So I think it's a continuation of that sort of idea uh, done in a kind of pop uh, way, and I and I think although I think it's still true to an extent, and there's there's a there's a loss loss of self confidence in 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 Western values. Uh, but but I think that when this book came out, this was a few years ago, and and the top issue as well was, or one of the top taboo topics was Islam, which is not really quite the same as it was. We've got uh, many other problems now. Um, uh, sorry, and when but, I say Islam, it, I, I, I don't mean Islam being the problem. I mean Islamism. And and um, and the such, yeah. But quite astonishingly, and in a rather powerful coincidence, it was actually published, wasn't it, on the day of the uh, Charlie Hebdo shootings in in Paris? Was it really? Yeah, yeah. And and wow. you know he was doing interviews. Uh, he was doing a round of media interviews while that was going on, and I think it actually led to the book selling probably far far more than than it might have initially, at least you know, uh, wow. in comparison to his other books at the time. Yeah, so it, I mean, it, it sort of very played played into its moment in a really bizarre and and extreme way. But um, I'm interested in that idea that you know that, that liberalism will tolerate the thing. You know, it's like pop will eat itself, isn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, because what's the alternative then, though? Because you talk about you know being an embracer of ideas and and that we should read uh, you know with with Catholic you know with sort of Catholic tastes and and and, and widely and broadly, um, but that plays in a way against the notion of of being influenced of of, of something of being too open to influence. Well, the the, the question whether what's the solution? Does that mean you reject liberalism because it's going to ultimately bring your undermining? It's, it's something I haven't quite done yet because I still consider myself a liberalist and, and a classical liberal and not a liberal in, in, in a modern concept of the term. And so I haven't yet personally rejected liberalism, but I think liberalism works or how liberalism came about was sort of in the enlightenment, it came against Christianity, but then was later reconciled with Christianity. And, and so I see, I see liberalism sitting within, within the cradle of Christianity, or Judo-Christian values, let's put it that way. And in America, if it's not in the cradle, they came to America simultaneously together at the same time. So I think that that's, if it's slightly different, it's slightly different. And Tocqueville describes that well, actually, in, in Democracy in America. But we're having the, the, the God pulled out from underneath. We're having democracy pulled out from underneath. And there was a, a recent um, poll saying that uh, Britain is now minority Christian, for example. Mm -hmm. And so uh, liberalism without the underpinning of the metaphysic, un of the underpinning of, of, of a greater religious structure, I think that's where it's, it's, that's where it's open to being torn apart. It's in, it's interesting you say that though because of course Welbeck's uh, position is is um, 
but he sort of thinks that the return of religion to the mainstream is is an extremely negative thing and and you know indicates a, a moving away from 18th century enlightenment that 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 sort of in a, that's sort of what this book is about. I mean, do you mm. do you agree with him, or do you like reading books that that provoke you and that you don't necessarily agree with? I don't agree with him. That's a very French position for him to take. Um, uh, but do, is that what he thinks, or is that what does he think that Islam? The problem is Islam. Does he does he reject Christianity as well? I, I think that perhaps. I mean, I don't know. Is the honest truth, mm. but I think that he used Islam at a time when, when obviously that would have been the the, the religion that appeared to be um, enforcing its doctrine uh, mm. a, a, across the world. So I suppose it would have been a handy tool uh, for him. I don't think. I mean, maybe maybe as a result of the fact the book came out on the day of the Charlie Hebdo um, murders, uh, maybe that's why he distant he, he made it a broader religious comment, you know, and that may well have mm. impacted on his thinking, I suppose. But I, I don't think he's being Islam specific. I, I, I would, I, w without speaking for him, I would say that, that I would distinguish Christianity from, oh, Judeo-Christianity from Islam in that, in that respect. And, and, and in, in their what respect? In their compatibility with liberalism, I think that the that the moderate Muslims who are, are are fighting to square liberalism with Islam, and 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 I and I believe in them. And actually, I think one good example of this is is Majid Nawaz, who I, I had dinner with a couple of nights ago, and he's desperately fighting to to square those things. But he's he's quite uh, quite alone, and and it's it's a difficult task. Whereas I but think, do you think do you think they're alone, or do you think we just don't hear from them because the story, the better story, is radicalism, isn't it? Whereas I would argue that there are many, many, many millions, even billions of 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 um, Muslims across the world who are absolutely incredibly open to ideas and aren't aren't the kind of radicals that we're presented with in the news headlines. Well, if you take the clerics and the imams specifically, this is where someone like Majid has a lot of difficulty. Now, he's, it's not to say that he's that, that he's certainly found some that he's uh, cooperating with him. But uh, so Sufism, which is currently a, 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 the, the the really small group of Muslims, I think that that there's a that would fit quite well with liberal uh, concepts. But, but Sunnism and, and Shia, that's a much harder task to square. I, I'm not sure. But Majid, you should get him on the show. This, he would be a good person to ask these sort of questions. Well, I'm very grateful to you for all of these guest recommendations. We have reached uh, your final choice, uh, which you describe as the first book that had a significant impact on you. But interestingly, many of these books seem to have had a significant uh, impact on you. But, but the one you've chosen is Hermann Hesse, Narcissism and Goldman. So tell me why, uh, when you read it and, and why it had a particular impact on you. Well, I read it as... Uh, a teenager, and I think it was the book that made me want to, at the time, in a roundabout way, be a musician, pursue my passions, because you have these two characters, Narcissus, who's the monkish academic, and Goldman, who is heart on his sleeve, following his, his passions, going out into the wild on great adventures. And for me, reading that book, it... it made me, it convinced me that I needed to be pursuing what I cared most about in the world. Uh, and actually coming, and you know, everyone in my school went to university. This was the time of new labor, education, education, education. This, I was, and I rejected that and I wanted to 
pursue my passions as Goldman did. And um, the only other sort of interesting insight I had into that book recently was because Hermann Hesse and, and Carl Jung were very close and uh, very good friends and inspired by each other. I, um, I, I, I recently on my podcast interviewed Jordan Peterson, who says Carl Jung is his hero and um, uh, cites him regularly, but has I'd never heard him mention Hermann Hesse. And, I, and so I asked him, why, why is that? And he said that you, uh, Hesse never added anything to Jung. He was just a kind of imitation of him. So I need to revisit Hesse. Again, it's another author that I haven't uh, read in, in 15 years, but um, I certainly remember how big an impact it had on me uh, as a teenager and, and in, in, in making, in making me sort of take this, this path of, of uh, passion, I guess. It's interesting that you say that because that sounds to me like it's a moment that you've experienced twice already in your life. First as a teenager and deciding to to go and, and become a musician. And then mm. secondly, after the controversy surrounding the, the, the tweet about the Andy No book um, and your decision to leave Mumford and Sons, which again was a, was a moment when you, you had to kind of stare into the depths of your soul and decide who you were and, and, and what you wanted to do. Do you ever regret that choice? You know, it's to use a sort of another classic archetypal literary example, it's Arthur going into the darkest part of the woods. And I think we know this in our lives. We, we need to choose. We can always choose the, the wide path, the, the easy route, but we'll always regret having not made the difficult decision. And, and in my life, I tend to always make the hardest decision. And uh, even sometimes quite reluctantly, as I uh, more recently. Um, but uh, th there's a reason why Arthur goes into the darkest part of the woods and faces his fears, because that's how you conquer the monsters. That is how you overcome them. And that is and that is the courage we're all called uh, to to undertake. When you look back, I mean, is there anything you would have done differently? You were obviously forced by the by 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 you know events. Uh, rather than, you know, making a choice without that sort of pressure. Do you still wish you were in the band? What do you see the, the future for you as, you know, I mean, I don't think you can make a living as a career reader, but you'd obviously be very well qualified. <laughs> well, you've got your podcast on books. Maybe uh, I should probably do something, but you're doing it better, better than I would. Um, uh, I I don't really see regret and uh, uh, sort of looking back as a useful uh, uh, use of time. So I'm... I, uh, just working as hard as I can. I've got my podcast with The Spectator that I'm absolutely loving. I just interviewed Graham Linehan uh, talking about um, his women's rights activism and his comedy, comedy career, astonishing comedy career. And I'm, I'm loving that and just find it intellectually stimulating. I've been in the studio uh, last week with American music, musician Ariel Pink and others and working on music. So I'm still making music no one knows what's going to happen in life, but we, we just work as hard as we can at, at what's in front of us. Winston Marshall, thank you so much for sharing your books to live by with me. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you. Mariella, the pleasure has been mine. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I do hope you enjoyed it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please follow Books to Live By on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the Times Radio app.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.